Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 23. Last week, I wrapped up with Ashkelon, one of the cities listed in Joshua Chapter 13 as having not been conquered by the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan River back into Canaan. This week, I'm continuing working through that list, and with that, let's get started. Next up is the city of Gath, sometimes rendered as Gat, or as Gath of the Philistines. Like the other four members of the Philistine Pentapolis, it was not defeated by the Israelites. It merited a mention again in 1 Samuel, in the part of the Old Testament narrative where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, a story I've touched on numerous times. In their case, they asked for the ark to be brought to them, not knowing what would follow, all quickly leading to a panic and tumors. Shortly after that, the ark was sent to Ekron. Backing up a bit, and even before this passage in Joshua, a few chapters back in Joshua chapter 11, Gath was mentioned along with Gaza and Ashdod as one of the last refuges of the giants known as the Anakim. More on them in a minute. What happened over the next few hundred years is a bit confusing. 1 Samuel 7 mentions that Gath was controlled by the Israelites. Note that this was during the period of the judges and before Saul was crowned king. 1 Chronicles 18 reads that King David captured Gath from the Philistines. 1 Kings chapter 2 claims that Gath was controlled by the Philistine king Achish. This part was recorded when Solomon was king over the united Israel. How to make sense of this back and forth? While it's a bit speculative, what probably happened was that control of the city alternated between Israel and the Philistines. So it went for many cities on the border between the two kingdoms. As I've mentioned before, it even happened between the Israelite tribes. As for Gath, it was certainly a Philistine city before the arrival of the Israelites, and seemingly remained so long after they came to control much of Canaan. Sometime in the period of the Judges, it was controlled by the Israelites, but then slipped back into Philistine hands. David won it back, only to lose it again likely before Solomon took the throne. What's even more interesting is that the king of Gath, Achish, was mentioned as controlling the city, either outright or as a vassal, during the rule of the Israelite kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Their combined rule was between about 1037 and 931 BC. What this means is that for a ruler to have controlled Gath during the reign of all three, he would have had had to have been on the throne from at least about 1010 to 970 BC, the last year of Saul and the first year of Solomon. Forty years is certainly believable. More likely, though, is that this King Achish wasn't the same person throughout the reigns of all three of these kings and instead was a form of a title, or perhaps rulers that shared the same name. David was very familiar with the city of Gath. It was the home of the giant Goliath. And this makes sense considering a few hundred years before their epic battle, and in Joshua, 
it was one of the few cities where the giant Anakim remained. After David slayed the giant, the Israelites pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and Ekron. But that wasn't the only time David ran into people from the city. When David was fleeing Saul, he took refuge in the city and while there, essentially worked for King Achish. When David's son Solomon was king, a man named Shimei went to Gath to retrieve his runaway slaves. There's much more to that story I'll get to at some point in the future. In 2 Kings, Gath is said to have been captured by the Aramean king Hazael. After this, the Arameans turned their attention to Jerusalem, intending to capture it too. Then, and as told in the text, King Jehoash of Judah took all the votive gifts that Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, his ancestors, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, as well as his own votive gifts, all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent these to King Hazael of Aram. Then Hazael withdrew from Jerusalem, and presumably Gath. King Solomon's son and successor, King Rehoboam, would fortify Gath, along with 14 other cities. These cities would then be captured by the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak. In addition to all of these mentions, there are the usual collection of geographic references. And, just in case you ever run into it, and you most probably won't outside of the biblical narrative's nine or so mentions, but a person from Gath is known as a Gittite, and that's it for the biblical record. Fortunately, its history is found in the outside record, too. The first place identified as the ancient Gath was Ramol, at least as far back as the 13th century AD. Various Jewish writers from the era named it as such. Though, as the 18th century came about and archaeologists began to explore the region, it was quickly determined that Ramol was not built atop any ancient city. However, many decades later, the ruins of an ancient city were found well outside the somewhat modern one. It just wasn't Gath. As archaeology progressed, the place thought to be Gath, at least by most, was Tel Zaphit, sometimes seen as Tel Asafi. This identification was first made by Edward Robinson in the 19th century, though less than 100 years later, William F. Albright would dispute Robinson's identification, relying on the fact that none of the uncovered artifacts from that location bore the name of the city. This remains true through today, and not just for that place, but for all of the sites thought to be the city. This lack of direct evidence leads to the rest of the story. Like many of the places I've covered, Artifacts from this place show evidence of periods of building and thriving followed by destruction, with much of this occurring in the 9th century BC. This would place the destruction after the Israelites showed back up, the period of the judges, and the rules of Saul, David, and Solomon. It may be about the same time as when the Aramean king Hazael temporarily captured the city. But back in the archaeological record, William F. Albright proposed another site, in this case Tel Arinai, 
and this place actually became more widely accepted as Gath, until excavators noticed there were no artifacts from the Middle Bronze Age, which is when the place was most frequently mentioned in the Old Testament text. After this, that site fell out of favor and was replaced by a third place, Tel Najela, with archaeological digs occurring throughout the 1980s, until it too fell out of favor. And with that, the proposed locations of Gath came full circle, once again returning to Tel Zafit. As for this site, it's located in the central part of the modern country of Israel, in the geographic region that borders between the southern coastal plain and the Judean foothills. While the excavations of the site began in 1899, those were exceedingly minor. Digging didn't begin in earnest until nearly 100 years later, in 1996. What this research shows is that Gath has been nearly continuously occupied from about the 5th millennium B.C., through the present day. Though, in the beginning, the occupation was mostly seasonal and by nomadic peoples, this would continue until about the early Bronze Age. The 6th century AD mosaic Madaba map doesn't directly name Tel Zephit, but instead uses the place name Zapitha. On the map, there was a different town known as Philistine Gath, and the map even pointed out this place was one of the cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. It did say it was the same place as Romula, too. The point is that the mosaic did not show the place modernly thought to be Gath, as Gath, and instead identified Romula. Combine this with the lack of archaeological evidence, and you end up with a confused, disputed location for the city though some have attributed the location on the map to a scribe's error. In my mind, though, scribal errors are more believable in a handwritten copy of a text. Mosaics require planning, and hopefully quality control, probably making such errors much less probable, but certainly not impossible. And that's it for the possible, probable, but not impossible place on the mosaic map. In the rest of the outside record, Gath was found in Egyptian inscriptions along with the Amarna letters. On those documents, two separate rulers are listed, probably from slightly different time periods. Another letter lists a different Gath, this one thought to be on or near the slopes of Mount Carmel. A little bit more on that place in a minute. The archaeological record shows a large city dating to the Bronze Age. This would correspond with the period when the Israelites showed back up. This also aligns with the biblical record of the city being significant enough to be included in the Pentapolis. Artifacts from the period include the usual pottery pieces, along with tombs. Also dating to the Middle Bronze Age are the remnants of a fortification with what was likely a stone wall and tower, and a rampart constructed from piled soil all typical to the period and region. From the late Bronze Age is a well-dug well. Buildings include a public house, maybe for trade or assembly, along with Canaanite religious artifacts and pieces that may have originated in Egypt. At least these pottery pieces show influences from Egypt, 
they could have also been locally made and merely inscribed with the Egyptian language. Either way, there was certainly Egyptian contact. This isn't surprising, as the Armana letters are from this general time period. Other finds seem to indicate this city was destroyed in the Late Bronze Age, an event that may have been the result of the arriving, immigrating Sea Peoples, and just before the Israelites returned from their exodus, probably sometime around 1175 BC. The Sea Peoples were likely the same as the Philistines, and were in control of Gath when the Israelites arrived back. By this time, Gath was a significant regional city. In the period, it was sometimes referred to as Gath of the Philistines, possibly another indication that there were other places known as Gath. Dating to the period, and in particular around the 10th and 9th centuries BC, so during and just after King Solomon ruled the United Israel, many archaeological finds have been uncovered in the city. Unlike the other members of the Pentapolis, the finds at Gath were well organized, meaning presenting themselves in multiple successive layers that unfold in a rough chronological sequence. They also seem to indicate that there was an earthquake in the period, probably during the mid-8th century BC. There's evidence of a probable man-made destructive event around 830 BC, which may have been the same as the one mentioned in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 12, and at the sword tip of the Aramean king Hazael. This destruction is shown throughout the tell, and may indicate a large-scale siege as evidenced by a man-made siege trench, a related berm of earthen embankment, along with other, smaller, less significant evidence. Then again, it could also have been the event referred to in 2 Chronicles 26. In that passage, we're told that the king of Judah, King Uzziah, who was 16 years old when he began to rule, went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. He built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. Do note that King Uzziah was co-regent with his father for 24 years, so this event was likely after he became sole ruler, when he was 40, since his father was not mentioned in the text. He ruled between 783 and 742 BC, so after the Arameans attacked Gath. In an archaeological context, these two events are too close in dating to accurately assign the destruction to either the Arameans or Judeans. After this destruction, no matter who caused it, the city was largely, but not completely, abandoned. The finds from the period around the destruction include pottery pieces, along with nearly complete pottery, religious artifacts, and even tools made from animal bones. There was also something else found in a lair dating to the late 9th century BC. So, during the early Iron Age, a pottery piece bearing a name that roughly translates from the non-Semitic Canaanite language to the name Goliath. Now, to be clear, this lair of artifacts dates to about 200 years after the young David slayed the giant. So, it was not likely an artifact that had belonged to the Gath native himself, 
unless it was something that someone held on to long after the stone made its impact on the warrior's skull. What it could just as likely show is that the name Goliath wasn't terribly uncommon, or his legend lived on and he was being written about for a few hundred years. My money is on the latter. On a slightly different note, this piece is also one of the earliest examples of the Philistine language, at least the one in use at that time. After this time, and likely owing to the destruction I mentioned a minute ago, the prestige and influence of the city nearly completely waned, never again to return to the level held while part of the Philistine Pentapolis. While it remained sparsely occupied, the history of the city converged with that of the region in general, more and more true as time passed. It was occupied during the Crusader period, when the European warriors built a small fort atop the Tell. They would christen it Blanche Guard, so named due to the impressive white chalk cliffs that were a natural barrier on its western approach. The Crusaders used this fort as part of their attacks on the nearby Muslim-held town of Ashkelon, but the Crusader control wasn't to last and the Muslims would quickly, at least when viewed in a long-term historical context, quickly drive off the Europeans. The fortress, at least its ruins, can be seen to this day, though. After the Muslims were the Ottomans, then the British, you know how it goes at least until the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, when the fighting drove off the few remaining inhabitants. And that's Gath of the Philistines. There were a couple of other Gaths, at least worthy of a mention. Overall, it seems the place name was relatively common in ancient Canaan. Obviously, there was the one I just covered, Gath of the Philistines, along with Gath Carmel I mentioned earlier. There was also Gath-Jitim, probably the one mentioned in 1 Chronicles 7, and possibly the next chapter. There may have been others, as seen in the 14th century BC Egyptian Armana letters. And that's truly it for Gath, moving along. Next up, and from the same passage in Joshua 13, is Mira. Little is known about this place, so little that we don't really know if it was a town or a region, or a political district, that in and of itself is very telling. The text does mention that it was in territory held by the Sidonians. This would place it on the coast, potentially in the modern country of Lebanon, so north of Canaan, or at least in the northern portion. This mention in Joshua is the only place the name is found in the entirety of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. The name itself, Mira, translates to cave, probably indicating it was in the hills or mountains, not far from the modern city of Sidon. Ten or so miles, 16 kilometers away, is a place named Maghiria, which translates to little cave, so probably not the same as the ancient Mira, but possibly in the same region. And that's it for Mira. The last place I'm covering this week is Sidon. It's a Lebanese city that's still occupied, and on the coast of the Mediterranean. The name of the city goes at least as far back as the Phoenicians, and translates to fishing town, 
which gives away a bit of its history. And the name obviously stuck. In the biblical text, it bears the name of Noah's son Ham, Ham's son Canaan, and Canaan's oldest son, Sidon, making Sidon the man, Noah's great-grandson. As for its mentions in the biblical text, they were of two frequent sorts. The first was as a geographic place name, and the second was in reference to the people that were from there, the Sidonians. When the territory in Canaan was allotted, Sidon was in the far northern reaches of the tribe of Asher, almost in the northernmost section, essentially in their frontier land. Though throughout that part of history, it was never really held by the Israelites. When they first crossed the Jordan, Sidon was a greater Phoenician city than the next spot further south on the coast, Tyre. As time passed, Tyre's fortunes grew, while Sidon's waned. Fast forward to when Solomon was king, and one of his many wives was from Sidon. This led to the Sidonian religion being accepted into Israel. Later, when Ahab was king of Israel in the 9th century BC, his wife Jezebel was from Sidon. Given all of this, it was a frequently mentioned place in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, and unlike many of the places I've covered, Sidon was even visited by Jesus. In this case, and from Mark 7, Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Just after this passage, Jesus heals a deaf man, but it's unclear if this occurred in Sidon or just while he was traveling to or from there. Throughout his few years' ministry, we're told of many people from Sidon hearing him teach. Later, in Acts 12, King Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they came to him as a group, and after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for a reconciliation because their country depended on Herod's country for food. Finally, in Acts 27, as Paul was sailing to Italy, his ship made a stop at the port of Sidon. What all of this means is that the economy and prestige of the city continued from before the Israelites arrived until after Jesus, a span of at least a millennium and a half. And that's the biblical text. In the outside record, Sidon shows evidence of occupation long before the invention of writing, meaning in the prehistoric period, even before pottery was invented. A trove of flint tools from this period have been uncovered. These include axes and chisels, along with the more usual spear and arrow tips. Later it would become a Phoenician city, maybe the most ancient of that lot. It's thought that the first residents of Tyre immigrated from Sidon. As for the Phoenicians, it would be vital to their control of the sea and shipping lanes throughout their history. From this period are ruins that would later be buried under a medieval crusader castle. More on that castle in a minute. There was also a Roman amphitheater. Records of events and things from there are not only found in the archaeological record, but also in ancient writings. Homer, the ancient Greek writer, 
wrote of many of the crafts from the city, in particular praising the glass, purple dye, and embroidery from there. This glass production was perhaps the most important industry in the city during the Phoenician era, as it was produced on a huge scale. As was the purple dye that would, probably unfortunately for the Sidonians, but this dye would be named for their daughter city, Tyre, a Zentirian purple, a dye I've covered many times in the past and would over the course of history become associated with royalty, royal purple. Throughout this long period, the city would be controlled by the usual regional empires, the Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Persians, Greeks, and ultimately the Romans. Like all of the region, it would eventually come under the control of the Muslims. But I'm getting ahead of myself. From this Old Testament period are the ruins of the Eshman Temple, dedicated to the Phoenician god of healing. It was built in the 7th century BC. Another uncovered artifact, this one thought to date to around the 5th century BC, is the sarcophagus of King Eshmanazar II. The Phoenician inscription on its top records that he was the king of the Sidonians. His mother was said to have been a priestess to Ashtart, the goddess of the Sidonians. Also recorded on the inscriptions are the Canaanite deities Eshman and Baal Sidon, said to have been the lord of Sidon, possibly the highest position in their local pantheon. This sarcophagus dates towards the end of the era when the region was controlled by the Persians. In 333 BC, Alexander the Great would capture the city. The Greeks led to the Romans, and the Romans morphed into the Byzantines. The Muslims conquered Sidon in 636 AD. In 1110, the city was captured by crusaders and became a vassal of King Baldwin I of Jerusalem. It was during this period that the Europeans built a couple of castles there. The Muslims recaptured it in 1187, but only held it for ten years, when it was conquered again, this time by German crusaders. They would hold it for over 50 years until 1249, when the Muslims destroyed it. Mongols arrived 11 years later, raising what had been rebuilt in the ensuing decade. Like all of the region, it would eventually come under the Ottomans until the 20th century, though for a brief period in the 19th century, Sidon was seized by the British when they fought the Ottomans. After World War I, Sidon was part of the French Mandate and would eventually become part of the independent country of Lebanon which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Gabalites. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.